All right, welcome to Doxa Church, whether you're here in person or watching online. Uh, my name is David Livingston. I'm one of the guys on staff here. My role is a church planting candidate here. And basically, Doxa Church was a church that was planted just a couple years ago. And our goal, we want to be a church that's on mission for God. But one of our core values is movement. So we want to be this kind of group of Christians that's moving towards God. We don't want to kind of plateau in our faith. We want to move towards other people with the kind of the gospel in our lives, but also we recognize that the church is God's plan A for the world, and so we want to be a church that plants more churches in other university cities like Madison. So that's my job on staff, is actually to kind of lead this new church plant that will be happening here in the next couple of years. But today, we're in Genesis 1, okay? So if you've got a Bible, pull it out, and you are going to turn to uh, the first page in your Bible. Well, not the first page, but after... After all the stuff that talks about how they translated everything, you're going to get past the end. You're going to get to the Genesis 1. Okay? Now, last week, we read the first half of the first verse, but <laughs> so today we're going to read a little more. <laughs> we're going to read a little more. This is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was morning, or there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And so this kind of this pattern continues. God goes on and he starts talking about vegetation and he starts talking about animals. But you eventually get to Genesis 1.26 and we'll read this part. It says, then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And that doesn't mean like creepy, right? We just mean like things that walk around, okay? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then eventually the kind of the end here of the chapter just says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And as you continue reading the story, you get to the seventh day of creation and God rests. He kind of like rests from his work. He just enjoys creation. And, and today we're, we're, we're looking just at the story of creation. Just as God has created this, this creation he made. We're actually, next week we're going to talk all about humanity and the image of God. So we're going to save that for next week. We're just going to kind of focus in on this story of creation. And I want to do three things. The first thing I want to do is I want to talk about how to read it. How, how do you read this? to what it's saying and then what it means. So the reason we're starting with how to read it is because there's actually, um, I think it's actually kind of a difficult task today for us to really understand what is Genesis 1 trying to say, what do we need to hear as Christians from this first chapter in the Bible. And so there's three things about the passage that I think make this a difficult text for us to read. And because of that, there's three postures that we need to have when we're reading it, okay? Ready? 
Three reasons it's difficult. First reason, this is one of the most known passages in the whole Bible. Okay, like everyone has heard these words, or at least you probably heard them to some degree. You may even have, have memorized this at one point in your past. It's very known. It's familiar. And one of the reasons it's familiar kind of in our Western world is because this is the foundation that so much of the Western world is built upon, but also it's the foundation the whole Bible is built upon, but also all of you who have started a Bible reading project have at least finished the first page, right? So like, you're like, I totally dropped off in Leviticus, but I read the first page. But the problem with that is things that are familiar to us, it's hard for us to see them with fresh eyes. And so we come to the text with these preconceived ideas because it feels familiar. First reason it's hard. Second reason it's hard is this is one of the most argued about sections in the whole Bible, right? Everyone's got opinions. Everyone's got thoughts. Well-meaning Christians have basically had this difference of opinion of, of how we exactly we should read this and what exactly do the details mean to tell us and what kind of questions about our world can we even answer from this text and so real great god-fearing bible-believing christians have had disagreements about this so the second reason it's hard the third reason it's difficult is because this is the oldest passage in the bible the oldest okay not just in the bible but like the oldest thing that's ever been written probably ever in the history of humanity and what this means is that we try to faithfully interpret the Bible. This is one of the passages that is like furthest from us, culturally, li literarily, historically, which doesn't mean we can't understand it, but it just means that in order for us to understand this, it's going to actually take hard work. And it'll be harder for us to rightly understand this compared to some other passage in the Bible that are written into a little similar, more similar culture to ours. Does that make sense? So three things that make it difficult. What does that mean? Well, it means that when we read Genesis 1, but also other texts like it, we need to come to the Bible with three postures. First thing is this. We need to read the Bible humbly, okay? We need to recognize that this is a really old text. It's really old. Our world is, the way we view the world, the way we view the cosmos, everything about our world today is very different from the culture this was written into, the people who were re originally reading this. And there have been many godly men and women over the years who've been confused and even disagreed on what certain sections mean. And so what that means is we just want to be humble people when we read this. Whatever kind of preconceived ideas you have of like, well, I, I'm pretty sure it means this, or I'm pretty sure the details mean this, that's fine. You can hold that in this hand. But on the other hand, we also need to hold humility and just say, but it's also really old. And really, a lot of people have dis disagreed on this. Okay, so humbly. But we also want to read this hungry. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that this part of the Bible is meant to change our lives, right? And so even parts of the Bible that are kind of maybe harder to understand or more difficult to like pull out an interpretation from, that doesn't mean we skip over them or we just go, well, what's the next thing? Maybe we'll, we'll skip onto that. No, this is a passage of the Bible that is meant to change our lives. And even if we can't understand every detail and everything that's happening, the big things we can understand, we need to understand because they're meant to change our life. Third thing, we approach the text honorably, okay? Now, I'm gonna explain what I mean by this because I think this is probably the most important point. In order to honor the text, and this is true for every passage of the Bible, but it's specifically true for Genesis, is that we need to let the text speak for itself. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the ways we do this is by letting the author tell us the story he is trying to tell instead of using the words of the story in order to answer the questions we might have, okay? That this is actually a really big difference. And so I think this is one of the big problems we have in reading Genesis is we don't let the author define what kinds of questions he's meaning to answer. Instead, we just say, here's my question. 
And I'm going to try to figure out how to get this story to answer my question, okay? So what would this look like? Well, for instance, you might want to know how old the earth is. This isn't a bad question. It's a really legitimate question. Or you might wonder what material or mechanical process God used to bring into existence the world we see today. Those may be questions you have, and there's nothing wrong with those questions, but if that isn't a question that the author of Genesis is trying to answer, then you're actually not honoring the text by using it and using his story to answer your question. Literature just doesn't work this way. Literature isn't something you can come to with any question you like, but literature is something that is designed and authored intentionally to answer certain questions. And so when you answer or when you ask the wrong questions, you will almost always get wrong answers, okay? Or at the very least, you'll be very confused, okay? So that's the first thing. But another way we honor the text and let it speak for itself is by not trying to force it to align with some other outside authority we have in the world. Because there's a lot of ways that we find out knowledge and we understand our world as human beings, right? We have psychology, genetics, anthropology, biology, like all of these are different authorities that help us understand the way the world works, help us understand our lives, all these kinds of things. And you know, every once in a while, there's gonna be something that we see in the world, an observation, that'll cause us to pick up the Bible and say, well, wait a minute, I thought the Bible says something different than that. And so sometimes we'll see something that's in the world and it seems true, it seems like this is the way the world works, and it causes us to go back to the Bible and go, are we really reading this correctly? Now, Rob talked about this last week, right? This is what happened in Galileo, right? Galileo's like doing some kind of basic astronomy, and he's like, I'm pretty sure that we revolve around the sun, not the sun around us. Now, what, what happened? Well, it didn't disprove the Bible, but what happened is it helped us understand that we should probably not read the poetic songs of Psalms in the same way you read a science textbook, right? Like, you shouldn't do that. And if you do that, you're going to get some wrong answers. So there have been times that some outside authority has caused us to pick up our Bible and help us understand how to rightly interpret it. But what we don't do, and we need to be really serious and careful about this in our world today, what we don't do is we don't take one of these outside authorities and use it as a lens by which we seek to find meaning in the text. So maybe science would say this. What we don't do is we don't take that and then say, now let's figure out how we can find this in here. What we want to do is we want to let the Bible speak for itself, okay? It's literature, it's culture, it's context, it's genre, okay? So one of the very first things we see about Genesis, we're getting into the text now, is that it is a song. It's a song. Genesis 1 is Hebrew poetry. And, and what this means is that it it isn't necessarily just not describing actual history because it is describing actual history. Genesis 1 is telling us about these real acts of God that created and shaped our world, but the creation story that Genesis gives us is in the form of a song. It's poetic, it's structured, lines repeat themselves, there's cadence and rhythm, and this affects how we read it. And it also affects the kind of questions we should ask of it. Right? When you get into a court of law, there's a reason that we open up the text of the Constitution instead of, oh, say, can you see, right, the national anthem. There's a reason, and, and they're, different, they're different things. They're both texts, but one's a song, and one's like a constitutional document, right? And so when you're in a court of law, you read the Constitution. But there's also a reason why when Americans gather together in joy and love and community, we don't recite lines from the Constitution, but we sing the national anthem, right? It's different, and it would be a really lame party if we got together and we were like, we are going to now read from section, you know. You don't do that. We sing. 
there are two ways that you can explain America to someone, okay? You can have them come in, sit with a group of lawyers, and they can explain to you how our laws work, how the Constitution functions, and they can explain to you the Declaration of Independence, or you could have them come over on a 4th of July celebration filled with families and individuals from every walk of life, every ethnicity and background, and you could listen to them join together under the fireworks with their faces lit up in all these colors, and you could hear them sing the national anthem. God chose to tell his story of creation that way. Less concerned with telling you how, less concerned with giving you kind of the material process that things got here, but it's more concerned with the deeper and really the more important questions, why? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are we here? Why do we have art? Why do we have language and music? Why does the red sky burning over the mountains kind of draw us towards us in this this kind of deep and profound way? Why when we see mountains, do we want to go to them and even like touch them physically and like climb them, right? Why does the crackling of a fire pull our eyes and our hearts towards it as it does? Why does the closeness of friendship and love feel so good when we have it and hurt so bad when we lose it? Genesis tells us why. And what it tells us, what it says, this is the second thing, second part, is that there is a creator. Christians, so often what we do is we miss the forest for the trees, right? We get so caught up in like details. We're like, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And then like the big thing of just like, there is a creator. We're like, yeah, I know, but let's move on and get to the little stuff, right? No, that is a life-shaping, unbelievable, good news reality. This world has a creator. You have a creator. And he knows you. This is the crashing reality that Genesis will not let us forget, right? Last week we talked about it, in the beginning God, but actually in the whole section of chapter one, there's 31 verses and it says God 35 times. It's not just like, hey, you should know this. No, it's like the reality and presence of God. You get like assaulted by it as you read the first chapter of Genesis. His presence and his reality, they weigh down on you as you read this. And we are told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this word created is this Hebrew word bara. It's a word you can't use of human beings. You can only use it of God because only God can bara something. It's to bring into existence something from nothing. Like we can make things, right? I can take wood, I can build a desk, I can take language and I can write a book or I could try to at least, right? But God isn't just shaping and forming things to create something new or something better. He's actually bringing time and space into existence. That's what Genesis 1-1 is, is saying. That's what it means. And the way it says this is it says that God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, now just so that we kind of are on the same page with what the literature is doing, heavens and earth are what we call a merism. It means like two opposites that describe one whole thing. So the literal Hebrew just literally says like land and sky. And in Hebrew thought, this is like everything. This is everything physical, everything spiritual, right? Heaven and earth, the cosmos, seen and unseen, all that there is, God created it. It's the very first thing Genesis wants us to know. But then look what it says next in verse two. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
So it doesn't just say that God created, but it gives this description of the way God is interacting with his creation. And, and it says hovering. Now, if you're like me, when I, I remember when I read this in high school, I used to think that like, and I think I had like a King James translation, so it was like the Holy Ghost, and he's floating. And I was like, this is kind of like creepy, you know? Like, what is going on here? And it feels like that, right? Like darkness deep, and then the Spirit of God is hovering, and you're like, what is going on? Well, this is an area of the Bible that's actually hard to translate, because we don't have a word that's similar to this. The, the, real, like the right translation would be fluttering, but that feels weird, because we're like, wait, is the Holy Spirit a, a bird? What's going on? But it's, it's fluttering. And, and this word is used all the time in Hebrew literature for like what a, like a, a mother bird does like over its young, like over its eggs and over its chicks. It's this like kind of way of like interacting in like intimacy and warmth and affection and closeness. That's what that word means. So it isn't a cold, detached God who creates at a distance, right? It isn't just that he kind of speaks and things happen and it's kind of detached. He's like, no, he, he flutters over his creation in love and warmth. In verse three, we can continue on and it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And as we keep reading this story, this pattern begins to emerge, right? God says something, and then creation, the world itself, reality, corresponds to his word. And then when God sees that happen, he sees that it is good, right? This is the general pattern that we kind of see over and over again. Even like the days are kind of marked out by this, this thing. The speaking of God, the seeing of God, the proclaiming of God is good. So first of all, why does it say that God says something? Because we know that God, you know, and he's, he's spirit. He doesn't have like a body with vocal cords. It's vibrating molecules in the air. It's like speaking in the way human beings speak, right? And so it's, we kind of recognize this isn't meant to be a material description of what happened, but it's describing something theological and really important about God because when God speaks, creation corresponds to his word exactly. When he says, let there be light, it just says, there was light, right? The universe and all that is in it, it responds to his voice, it responds to his word. And what this is doing in part is showing us a picture that this creator is a creator who has complete sovereign authority and power over his creation in such a way that for him to say something, for his word to go out, it determines everything about reality. When God tells trees to come out of the ground, they come. When God tells animals to come forth according to their kinds, they do. When God speaks, his creation reacts accordingly. But another thing we see is that God's creation happens by his word, right? Without anything else needing to happen. So God says, let there be light. And then just says, and there was light. So one of the things we see is happening is that the word of God in Genesis, the word of God itself has this like personal agency. It has this ability to kind of just, the word itself, to go out and cause things to happen. It has kind of action within itself. And so from the very beginning of reading the Bible, there's something really interesting that's happening with the word of God here, okay? So we don't understand all that's happening. We just take that and we're like, okay, that's interesting. Put that in our pocket because you're going to need that when you get to the New Testament, okay? (laughs) And we'll get there at the end of the sermon. But God's word goes forth. Creation and reality corresponds. And then when God sees creation corresponding to his voice, he sees that it is good. This is one of the phrases that happens over and over again, right? It was good. And he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then finally, kind of the last, you know, kind of day six of this, when he creates Adam and Eve and and all of creation is complete, it says that he sees that it was very good. 
What is God doing? Why does the text keep, keep saying this or highlighting this? Well, it's not an inspection report, okay? So you could kind of view this like an electrician, like he comes into the house, you know, he's like checking the light switches, he's like, let there be light. Okay, there's light, good, that works. Like, that is good, it's working correctly, right? This isn't like him, you know, giving this inspection report, like, do the physics of this thing work correctly? Like, do people stay on the ground like they're supposed to, or are they floating around? He's like, it's not an inspection report, okay? When it says that God saw it was good, it means that the creator is rejoicing over his creation. Like he's, like, he's like blessing it. He's even glorifying it. He's praising it. Because when he sees it, it brings him delight. And so one of the things that we see in Genesis is actually incredibly important. It's not just that there is a God, and it's not just that our existence and our world flows from him. And it's not just that there is a creator, but it's trying to tell us what kind of creator is this? How he relates to his creation and also what it means to be part of his creation. And so one of the things that the story tells us is that God created everything with intention and purpose. Things are done orderly. There's days, there's structure, there's commands, right? Even like the, the patterns that we see like in the first day and the second day, like all of these things are telling us that the way God created was with order and intelligence and purpose. And not just in the way that an engineer would make something, right? That it, it functions and works properly. We're meant to understand that he creates out of love. It's not just physical intention, it's like emotional intention. We're told that he flutters over his creation. There's intimacy and warmth. He rejoices in it. He even praises it. Now stop for a second, okay? Because one of the biggest questions that we have in this room, I know, you, I know we have it, is this. We want to know whether this picture of creation conflicts with science or not. And I know this is what we're going to talk about in our connection groups. We might as well get ahead of it, okay? This question, what does this have to do with modern science? Well, I think it depends what you mean by science, okay? Because there's a really big difference between the observable phenomena that we can kind of see in our physical world and the philosophy that we use to try to explain the things we see. For instance, there's this general consensus of most of the scientific community, it's not the whole community, but many scientists seem to say, hey, the world seems to be quite old. Not even quite old, like really old. And a lot of scientists agree that the things that seem true to us today the things that we see today, the organisms, the biological structures, they have materially come about through a very long process of incremental change over time, okay? Now that seems to be just the general consensus of science. Now this may or may not be true, the reality is we don't know. It's a theory, there's a hypothesis, and there's some findings. And the things that seem true to us today, they might seem ridiculous to us 200 years from now, we don't know, but is there anything in Genesis that is pushing against these observations of our world. I, I just, I don't think so. And the reason is because that simply isn't a question that Genesis is trying to answer. It doesn't really care about that question. What Genesis is saying though, and what it is pushing back against strongly, is the philosophical idea that our world has come about by accident or chance. Genesis is really intentionally pushing back against this idea that your world and your life is an accidental and unguided outcome of powerful forces at work in this world and that your existence is really no different than the rest of the material world around you. 
The idea that the world was formed through unguided, chaotic forces of power is fundamentally incompatible with the creation account of Genesis, okay? Now, we don't need to be ashamed of this or try to hide over it or gloss over it. We can just say it really clearly. The creation story of the Bible that God has given to us is fundamentally incompatible with the philosophy behind Darwinian evolution, okay? But one of the things that's really interesting to know is that that philosophy of just like the way things got here, chaos, power, accident, it's actually not a modern idea at all, okay? It's not modern, it's actually ancient, it's not new. This is really just a way of like retelling all the old ancient pagan myths. Because all the ancient creation stories are like this, right? The gods were fighting with one another and then one of them gets kind of cut in half in this battle and like that's how the oceans are formed. Or there are some groups of gods that are kind of going to war and in the aftermath, the earth and mankind was born. All of them have this same kind of idea, which is to say that the earth and mankind are like this really happy accident. Like we look around at the world and we say, hey, like, there's beauty and love here, and there's something that seems good and even like divine, and so this probably came about through these really powerful forces, we'll just call them the names of these gods, but we also look around and like, people die, and the world's really unfair, and there's evil and oppression, and the world's also kind of horrible at the same time, so it must be like just this cosmic aftermath of this divine thing that was happening, and so yes, there's divinity here, yes, it's good, but also it's really broken and messed up, so it must be born out of chaos, and so almost all the old creation myths say this. It's like a man who knocks over a can of paint in his garage, right? And it's like, yes, there's paint on the floor, and it may even be kind of interesting, like what happened there, but there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no intention to it. So the philosophy of naturalistic evolution that is common in our culture is really no different than the ancient pagan myths. They've just replaced the names of pagan gods with these more modern names, these modern ideas of material sources of chaos and power. It's not a new idea. It is a really old idea. And from the beginning, the Bible is saying, that's not the story of the world. The Bible's saying clearly, that story of the world is not true. And guys, we don't need to be afraid of that or weirded out by that because that is really good news. Because it means that like when you look at the world and you see things as beautiful and lovely, it means that that isn't just like some neurons firing in your brain who are tricking you to think that and causing you to have this perception of meaning and value that's not actually real. That view of the world sucks, <laughs> it really does. It's horrible and it leads to nihilism and purposeless and hopelessness. And so we can actually just say, this is good news. The world we see. All of it has a creator. This world is not an accident. Your life and your story, they are not the product of chance and chaos. You have a creator. And he didn't accidentally knock over a can of paint, but he picked up a brush and he painted a picture. That's what the Bible is saying. But the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it means so much, honestly. We don't have time to cover almost any of it, but this view of creation that is ordered and structured, that's created intentionally and intimately, 
that God didn't create in order to fulfill some kind of need he had, right? Because if you kind of read the rest of the Bible, you figure out that like from the very beginning, like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like they have existed in perfect community forever. God wasn't lonely, so he created people. More other older creation accounts will tell you that he was hungry, and so he created humans to eat them, or he like, was filled with lust, and so he created women so he could have sex with them. Like all the old creation's accounts are basically saying, hey, God created because he had some need that creation would fulfill for him. And Genesis says, oh no, he didn't have any needs. He was having a great party for all of eternity within himself, okay? <laughs> he didn't have any needs. He didn't need your praise because within himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit always heaping praise on the other. He wasn't lonely. So Genesis tells us that he created it as an overflow of his love. And that originally as God designed creation, it was good. This is one of the most important revelations from God in the entire Bible. It's not something that we should move past quickly. It's not something that we as Christians should say, oh, we just know that. We'll move forward. This is the underlying philosophy and the bedrock that undergirds everything about our modern world. Without Genesis and this understanding of our world, this specific philosophical assertion from God to us that this is the way the world is, without this, you have no basis for universal human rights. Zero. Without this, you have no philosophical basis for the scientific method by which we have our iPhones, right? You have no basis for shared morality. You have no basis for understanding things as actually right and wrong, actually good or evil. And you have no basis for believing in some of the things that we feel most true, beauty and love. But we do have those things. Those things are real and they are true because we have a creator and he created out of love. And because of this, the Bible doesn't just give us a description of what he did, but it gives us a song. And Revelation 19 says this, or sorry, Psalm 19. Revelation 19 says something different. Psalm 19 <laughs> says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Like the heavens, like you look up, you, you kind of just you see them up there. And the sky above it proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech. Night to night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Yet their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Right? He's saying like there aren't any words. Right? Like if you, 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 you look at your telescope or you like tune your frequency and you listen, you don't like hear actual words. But he's saying that all creation is singing of the glory of God. And he's saying, even though there aren't words, no matter where you are on our planet, you can hear the music. And we feel that, right? Like when you're in your neighborhood and you're just, it's like a beautiful fall day and the leaves are falling and the little kids are like running after this dog down the street and they're laughing and giggling. Like you feel that. Or like there's a song being sung. And when you are in Rocky Mountain National Park and you see like from a distance the storm that is coming in with lightning and thunder, it is roaring and singing a tune about the glory of God. When you fall in love and you feel like your heart is exploding with emotion and meaning and purpose and everything you want, you're hearing the song of creation. We all know this. Everyone knows this. But the question is, 
what is creation singing about? What is the song actually saying? Like, what is the song? Well, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York. He's, he's looking at Genesis 1, and he's recognizing, like, there's a song that's happening. And he says that the reason creation is singing is not just because it wants to glorify the creator. Right? The song is, in part, there is a creator, there is a creator, there is a creator, and he is amazing. But he says they're not just singing because they know there's a creator. They are singing because creation knows the creator delights in them. That's the song of Genesis 1. It is good. And the reason Genesis 1 is a song is because what creation does when it hears the delight and praise of its maker is it doesn't just say, God is good, and write it down. You sing a song back to your creator about how he delights in you. So creation is singing because it knows that when their creator looks at them, in every individual part, right, the stars that the Bible tells us God has not just numbered, but named. When God sees them, he sees that they're good. And so that's why when you look at the stars, they sing to you about their creator because they know he delights in them. He sees that they are good. And the tragedy of your life and the reason that the story of the Bible gets so sad so quickly is because you, as part of his creation, can't sing that song anymore. This pattern of God speaking to his creation, creation corresponding to his words, that breaks when God speaks to us. Because every other part of creation corresponded to his words, and we didn't. But when he speaks to us and he defines what goodness is for us, we actually chose to listen to another voice. And we're going to get more into this, how this story unfolds, but the Bible just tells us that when we followed this other voice, we were deceived. And in our deception, we were actually cut off from God. We're cut off from his voice, can't hear him speak to us anymore. But also now when he sees us, it's not delight that he feels but it's sorrow and anguish and sadness because we do not reflect his glory and his goodness into the world as we were designed to anymore, but actually we have brought into our world sin and destruction and envy and evil and lust and oppression and injustice and pain and death and disease. The Bible says that the, the reason those things are part of our world is not because it was born out of chaos. It says that the pinnacle of his creation, Adam and Eve, humanity, didn't follow his word. So even though God made it good, he made us so good that we were able to destroy it. And the tragedy of our lives 
And actually the Bible tells us it's not just the tragedy of our lives, but the tragedy of our world is that we were created to join into that song and we can't sing it. And it, it's, the tragedy is that it isn't just we were supposed to play a part. Like, you see the, the band up here, and there's like, everyone's got a role, right? It's like, you got the guy on bass, you got everyone. It's like, no, no, it's not just that you would play a part, but you were the image of God. You were given the climax, the, the kind of the main part, the chorus, the crescendo. You were given the solo. You were given the loudest and most beautiful voice in all of creation to declare along with everyone, but also in front of the rest of creation, there is a creator and he is glorious and wonderful and amazing. And he says, we're good. He delights in us. He loves us. He's proud of me. This is what you were created for. This is why you were created. That's what Genesis says. That the creator would see you, the real you, like your hopes, your fears, your dreams, your aspirations. He would see like to the very depth of your emotions. He'd see to the very core of who you are. He, he would see you even deeper than you see or know yourself because he knit you together in your mother's womb. He doesn't just know things you know about yourself. He knows every atom and molecule. He knows every divine thing he's put in you. He knows you to the absolute depth of who you are and what you were created for was so that you would be able to hear your maker say, I see you and I delight in you. I'm telling you, no matter who you are in the room, no matter what your story is, that is what you've been looking for your entire life. You're not actually looking for the job that can get you the money, that can get you the cool house. You're not actually looking for the right kind of retirement set up financially so that you can live in a certain place. You're not actually looking to kind of, you know, like get your body really set up right so that you can finally find someone who will really like you and they'll actually date you and they might stay with you and maybe you'll experience true love. I'm telling you that all those things you think you want, you don't actually want that. What you really want is you want to know that your creator is proud of you. And the one being in the world that can see to the depth of you, that when he sees you, he would say, you're good. And the reason this is true is because this is what you were created for. I was, and you were too. And we were meant to not just feel the delight of our creator, but we were created so that when we feel his delight, we feel his gaze and his presence, his joy over us, that we would be able to join into this song and worship him, not just because he exists, but because he loves us. You were created to join into that song. So Genesis 1 is saying, but the tragedy of your life is that because of sin, you can't. You can sing that, but it won't make it true. 
but the Bible says that this is why Jesus came. We're not going to go there because we don't have time, but if you go to John, he retells the creation story. And he retells it, and he just says this. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, he was in the beginning with God. Then it goes further than that, and it says, through him, this he word being, everything was made. And nothing that was made was not, was made not through him. But then it goes even further than that, and it says, the word that was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. What John is doing is he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he's saying the reason that the word was kind of confusing in there and the reason it had this personal agency and had action within itself is because the word was a person. Jesus. Your creator that loved you enough to make you loved you so much more than that that he was willing to write himself into the story so that he could die for you. because you were created to sing that song and you can't. But what Jesus Christ did on the cross was he took one of his trees that he had created and he allowed his creation that he had named to lift him up on that tree so that he could be crucified. So that you who can no longer sing that song that God delights in me, so that you could begin to sing the song that Jesus has been singing from before the world began. Because Jesus has always been singing that song. His Father has always delighted in him perfectly. And on the cross, Jesus says, you can't sing the song of creation anymore, but I want to give you a new song where you would be able to sing it not just to God, your creator, but you'd be able to sing it to your father. And that you would know with every single fiber of your being that when your maker and your creator sees you, he sees you as his child that he is proud of. And he sees you as good. That is what you are looking for in every single avenue of your life. It's what you were created for. And through Jesus Christ and through his blood that's shed on your behalf, if you put your faith in him, the Bible says that that becomes a song you can sing. Let's pray. God, you are our creator. God, you are our creator and you know us and you see us and you see us to the depth of who we are and God, the reality of our lives, the thing that is so sad is that God, we screwed up so bad. But God, you are not just a creator who created from a distance and gave us some plan of how we might be able to find our way back to you, but you you came to us. You wrote yourself into your story so that you could die for us. So that you could give us a song to sing once again. So that we can actually say with conviction and truth that there is a creator. And when he sees us,